This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Thabiti Anyabuile. And I'm Ben Brophy. All right. So today, um, as we kind of round the bend toward the election, we wanted to, so we've already talked a lot about kind of like how we vote and how we decide how to vote. We've actually dedicated more than one episode to talking about those issues. Um, This episode may sound like it's sort of treading over some of that ground, but it's about a very specific thing. This is a sort of a phenomenon in the Christian universe, let's call it, of teaching people teaching Christians on how they should vote or attempting to influence Christians on how they should vote. And let me just say a few things about what I mean by that. There's a sort of a a universe of endorsement or disendorsement of candidates occurring uh, among Christians. And I'll just, I'll just lay out a few examples from sort of our reformed evangelical circles, which tend to lean one way, but then I'll, I'll note that the phenomenon is kind of, you know, sort of on both sides. So, um, Probably the strongest version of this from a name we know who's kind of serious person to be taken seriously is someone like John MacArthur, who, you know, earlier this cycle kind of made some waves with a video in which he said, this is the quote, from a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. There's no way a Christian could affirm. And then he sort of lists something, aspects of the Democratic agenda, as it were. So that's kind of a disendorsement. And the implication being there's no way a Christian can't vote for someone like Donald Trump. They should, right? Um it's also been framed in terms of positive endorsements. So I think we referred to um, our friend Al Mohler, um, who has essentially said, I'm, I'm going to vote for Trump. I'm probably going to vote for Republicans for the rest of my life. Um, and sort of openly questioning and wondering out loud how anyone who's a Christian could do otherwise, essentially. Um, you can go down the list, kind of eminent theologians or scholars, people like Doug Wilson or Wayne Grudem, um, who kind of we know from like seminary textbooks and courses and other things, but who will, if you ask them about their politics, are going to either take it as a given that, of course, the Christian choice is to vote for the Republican, or in this case, for Donald Trump, um, or will actually say that explicitly. Um, I want to note that, like, there are a number of figures like that, and then there are probably less well-known in our circles, but there are people on the other side, too, who would similarly say, um, you know, how could you be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump? Right? Or how could you be for a Christian and not, how could you be a Christian and not vote for um, Joe Biden? And so there's this just general set of sort of, again, I'm, 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 I'm being loose by calling it teaching, but I'm calling it that because many of the people making these statements are people with sort of pastoral ministry as a part of what they do. And many of them are quite prominent. And so we wanted to just spend an episode talking about what we think of this phenomenon um, and how it intersects with the things we've said before about, you know, how, how Christians should think about voting. So Ben, the BD, let me go ahead and just start with an open-ended question. Is there anything we as a kind of podcast crew want to say about this phenomenon of endorsement and disendorsement ahead of the election? They're both pointing at each other on the, for the this record. This is radio, not television, so that's not as funny. Um, go ahead, go ahead I'll, I'll uh, I, I would say two things uh, really quickly. One is it, it's a bad development. 
it's a bad development because it is binding the consciences of Christians in ways that the Bible doesn't. Uh, it's taking what some people have called jagged edge issues um, and making them straight line issues. That is to say, it's taking issues that, that clearly have moral roots um, and uh, about the morality, we, we might be very clear about them as Christians, but sort of drawing a dark line to particular policy prescriptions, or in this case, platforms or candidates, drawing that dark line in a way that the Bible doesn't. Uh, the line might be much more jagged and allow for um, differences of conscience. So I think the first thing to say is this is unhealthy um, because it is not actually teaching it, it is binding um, in, a, in a fundamentalistic um, kind of way. The second thing I would say is that it's, it's not a good development because in point of fact, I think what it indicates is our faith has been pimped politically. Um, and to some extent, even many inside the church now are pimping it. Uh, it's one thing if secular politicians are you know, out there sort of trolling for votes and, and things of that sort and trying to manipulate the faithful in order to get a vote. It's one, it's one thing if, if unbelieving people are doing that. But if we have become so partisan uh, as to frame these issues as a litmus test for genuine faith or not, um, I, I think I fear that on some level we, we, we have become um, sort of pimps ourselves. Uh, of the faith in a political way. And that, that is, that's distressing. That's very unhelpful. I think you've, uh, really, I had an episode title, but you've just given us a better one, which is our faith is being pimped politically and how to stop it. <laughs> All right. There was uh, this is not germane to anything, but there was a commentary. No, uh, there was a pastor who wanted to preach in Revelation it's like when the Babylon falls and wanted to call it the whore is no more, but then thought better of it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I don't have, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I affirm all that we shouldn't be binding conscience where the Bible doesn't bind conscience. I mean, that just seems, that's just true. Um, so I would affirm that. I mean, I think there's different, different levels of endorsement here. Like if a pastor says you can't be a believer and vote for, you know, a Democrat, that is more offensive than somebody who's not a pastor who's thinking out loud and says, you know, I've come to the conclusion that I'm going to vote for Donald Trump and you should too. And, and I think like, I'm more comfortable with that. And then there's also a question of vocation. Like some Christians are, you know, working for various political campaigns and they are going to try to persuade you uh, to vote one way or the other. Now, they should not be trying to persuade you um, by saying the Bible says you must support this person or that person. But I, I'm comfortable with them trying to persuade or inform my conscience, uh, you know, on the issues or whatever else. So I, I think I don't want to say what I don't want to do. And I don't think I know Thabini didn't say that. Nick, I don't even think your question said that. But uh, mm -hmm. a carve out I want to create is Christians do need to be engaged in the political world in the hopes that we our salt and light in those spheres. And so, yeah, yeah, we Christians, depending on vocation, are going to endorse political candidates and they're going to try to convince people to do that. I think what becomes noxious and sinful is where, it be, you know, you start using the Bible 
to try and justify those things mm. in the in the in a person right like you may say like let's list the democratic and republican platforms if they exist and say this is what i think the bible says on all of these policies mm. that, that takes a lot of time but that's that's fine that's a worthwhile exercise but when it becomes like i think the bible endorses x candidate uh, that's where I, I get really, I think that's just really problematic. Yeah. Does your answer, so I completely agree with you there, Ben, that we're, uh, nothing about what we say today should be construed to mean like you can't have opinions about who you're going to vote for and or share those opinions and express them. I think one question would be, does that answer get um, refined if a person is, a, is in a position of pastoral ministry? And if so, how? And I'm not presuming the answer to that question. I really want to know what you guys think of that. I mean, I, I think, think so. go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Ben, please. Yeah, I, I think it does. I think, I think you have a response. Yeah. It all, of course, it all depends on the specifics, but I think that it does. You have a responsibility in your, in your vocation as a pastor um, to represent the Bible accurately and uh, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to model Christianity well, and that means not not binding the conscience. Now, um, I think pastors also have freedom. So, if a pastor in private conversation with a congregant or whoever else says, you know, for X, Y, and Z reasons, I have decided to vote this way, you are free to make your own calculations. I'm I'm comfortable with that, but they need to pastors i think have to be really careful in the sense of when you preach the word every week there is a level of trust and relationship between you and your congregation so so steward that voice well um be very careful on how you use that so if you speak off the cuff about politics and you say some things that sound really hard in one direction mm. i think you're stewarding that voice poorly um so again it just depends on the specifics but to me there is obviously a sacred trust between elders plural and a, and a local body and so your voice has influence and impact and rightfully the bible says that the congregation is to be looking to you as as an example of how to imitate christ yeah and so just be really really careful with how you work all of that out but at the same time i don't want to sit here and say pastors are not allowed to talk about politics or not, of course they are. The Bible talks about things that we would call political. But I mean, I don't wanna blanket ban pastors from being able to talk about candidates in their lives. I think that's restricting freedom too far in the other direction. Um, but yeah, that, I think I'll, I'll, I'll end with that. It's, it's, it's hard to put down hard and fast rules without having a really specific case uh, in front of me, but that, that's kind of my gut instinct. Yeah, I think I'm largely in the same place as, as Ben. I think pastors have to be careful um, sort of what they say in the way of endorsing candidates, which is what we're sort of talking about particularly, or endorsing parties. Uh, and in fact, generally, I would say that's a bad idea uh, to be so specific as to endorse a candidate or to endorse a policy um, or a party. Um, I think generally that's a bad idea because often those things are going to be well beyond the scope of the pastor's job um, when he's speaking from the pulpit, for example, or, or meant to be teaching God's word. Mm -hmm. Do you the think other thing I'd, I'd want to say is 
that we, we do want to bind people's consciences, but we want to bind it to the Bible, right? So that means, in, in my view, that actually the task the pastor should most be engaged in uh, is not partisan recommendations, um, but line upon line, precept upon precept, exposition of the scripture, and application to the sorts of issues that um, the scripture needs to be applied to. Uh, the, one of the reasons why I am, a, I am committed to exposition as a regular form of preaching uh, in, in our local congregation is it, it's, the, it's the form of preaching that most sort of reveals the, the line of God's own thinking in the word. And that's what I want my people to do is to think God's thoughts after him. That's what I want them bound to, right? Um, and so what I want to do is actually do the, the painful, slow, um, inefficient work of expositing and applying the scripture with an eye toward helping my people learn to think um, God's thoughts after him, right? Uh, and helping them to arrive with, at, with discernment and wisdom at the positions that um, we, we, we hope we should be arriving at from the scripture. That's a very different thing um, than, than sort of endorsing, which is the way we've, we've framed the question for the show. Um, and I think to tag on to what, what Ben is saying about being very careful with the kind of accrued authority that's given to the regular preaching of a, of a local church, I think we need to be careful not just with the sort of overly hard positions that, that Ben was talking about. I actually think we also need to be careful with the very general positions um, that, that have the sort of undercurrent of, it, of course, it must be this way. I, I'm not sure I'm saying this clearly, but when someone says, I, I'm endorsing a, a party platform, what does that really mean? Right, and and what's the what's the real biz, biblical exegetical basis for doing that? So I actually think we could talk in vague ways that bind the conscience too, and and the reason it binds the conscience is because the listener is imputing to that comment all of the affection and respect that they have for you as a normal expositor, right? So. So when, when MacArthur says, you know, as he did in 2016, I'm not endorsing a candidate, I'm endorsing a, a platform that, that's most, most akin to the biblical worldview. People who've been listening to John for 50 years or 10 years or 20 years, they've taken all those years of hearing John in the pulpit on whatever text, mm. and they are imputing to that comment the currency of those years of, of dealing with the biblical text. I, we need to be careful about that as pastors. Um, Many people want to assume the best about what we're saying, and I think that puts on us a greater responsibility to kind of lay bare our thinking uh, in, in, in more explicit ways uh, than the sort of shorthand comments and endorsements and recommendations that have often been out there. So, you know, I'd want to hear Al say more about why he's going to be voting Republican for the rest of his life. Okay, that's a prophecy. What, what are you seeing for the next 30 years, right? <laughs> that leads you to believe that's gonna be a, a sustainable position. Um, I, I wanna know what, what of that comes from, you know, the Bible in his mind, and what of that comes from other sort of principal convictions he have that, that he would assume are consistent with the Bible, but are nevertheless not biblical teaching. And, and I wanna know 
Al, haven't you voted Republican for all your life already so far? So what, why, why put it that way? You know, um, what are you attempting to do as an act of communication by putting it in so um, provocative a way uh, as that? So I just think we have a responsibility as teachers to teach. And, and part of what we need to do as teachers who teach is leave breadcrumbs so that people can actually follow the trail of our thinking hopefully with their Bibles open, being Bereans, and decide for themselves where we are mistaken um, or where we have taken a, a, a leap of logic um, or where they just have different convictions. Otherwise, we do run the risk of um, usurping the kind of authority we have as teachers in ways that bind the conscience without any sort of biblical exegetical uh, grounds for doing so. I will say this to me. You may have hit on the winning argument and reformed evangelical circles don't do it we might say don't endorse uh so and so you may be endorsing racism yeah that may sway some but don't endorse someone you may be committing eisegesis that <laughs> will send all of them into retreat i think i do think so um, i think it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you accuse me of eisegesis um so although i mean that is a commentary on what we've said before right like what are we most afraid of right like and i think mm -hmm. that um uh, obviously our theological convictions are important but i think you've used the word pietistic in the past to describe how that can itself be a problem and i think it can be um I will say, so, so one thing I'll add to you guys, and I have another question. The thing I'll say on top of all that is it feels to me like not being a pastor, but like if you are a pastor with that accrued authority that you just described so well to me, I think what happens is you can state your opinions, but you should state them with an asterisk, right? Sort of a, I am not trying to bind your conscience here, right? Like, because I know you might read it that way. I know well, you might read it that way. Like, how could you be so naive as to think that people won't read it that way? Yeah. Right? Well, like, um, I think, yeah. I think like one of the things that kind of became clear to me as Davidi was talking is like how we're, how we're framing this is important, right? Like, what do we mean when we say endorse? Um, and then what is, what is advisable, what is allowable, advisable, or, or prudent for a pastor to do? And so if uh -huh. we're thinking about endorsement, I'm thinking very much of public speech in favor of a candidate or a party right mm -hmm. so that's where um yeah it's it, be very careful usually a bad idea i'm curious though how and i think we're starting to get this a little bit like how does a pastor navigate that stuff in private conversations um knowing that he still has a stewardship there um but also having come to some conclusions on political issues like i certainly yeah, I don't, this is more of a question. I don't, um, I, I, I don't want to restrict a pastor's freedom in those scenarios in an unhelpful way. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think. Sabini, how do you handle it? Do people ask you <laughs> how you're, how, who you're voting for? What do you think? Who should I vote for? That sort of thing. Yeah. Here's where I think, actually, I think it's better well, first of all, Ben, I appreciate the way you're uh, lobbying for pastors to be people too, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And to, really and to have yeah, an opinion. That's the idea. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I appreciate that. Uh, because there are people who don't think we should be, you know, counted as the regular people uh, and engage in this way. Um, 
I, having said that, I actually think the safer way for a pastor to express their opinion uh, is in public spaces rather than private spaces, mm. right? Because what happens in the private spaces, I think, is that um, we're, we're a little less accountable, we're a little less circumspect, um, we, may, we may be a lot more forceful, and, and that's shaping too, that's teaching too except that we're just gonna be teaching the people who are, are able to get close enough to us to have the conversations, right, that we trust. And so we're gonna be contributing to the factions in the church because of that. Uh, and guess what? The things we say in private like that, guess what the people do with them? They, they go out, <laughs> right? Exactly. And they become ambassadors into that position, right? Uh, they begin to sort of shape the culture of the church in an informal, unofficial, tacit way, which is actually part of what cripples churches' ability to sort of deal with it. You know, it becomes one of those things that, quote, everybody knows, but nobody said, right? And, and those, things, those things can be deadly. So I actually think the pastor will serve the congregation more effectively if he says it in the hearing of everybody, right? Uh, or, or a large group of people, not just a clique. Um, and if he says it, again, in a teaching context, rather than a, a friendship context. I, I would be, I would, I would, I would encourage caution at, at sort of presuming that the friendship context is going to remain a private context uh, and not be something that begins to shape um, the congregation in ways that you might not wish the congregation to be shaped if you're self-consciously teaching them. Uh, so I would just encourage pastors to more often be in a self-conscious teaching role uh, and to disciple their people in this regard and to do that more widely rather than privately. I do think that is a counterintuitive and really helpful conclusion, I think, and just for pastors out there, I hope. Yeah. Well, we, we should take a break. I want to just end this, this section with maybe the whole main point of our whole episode here, which is I just, just as a pub, almost a public service announcement, if there's anybody listening who thinks that, you know, your conscience should be bound in the way any of these people are trying to bind it. We're here to say that is simply not true, right? To do that in this election is to add to the gospel is in an unhelpful way is to impose a litmus test that God never intended. Like there is freedom in how you vote. And we will never tell you like, you know, you're not a Christian if you don't vote for Donald Trump or you're not in this election cycle. We'll, we'll talk about, you know, the future in a second, but we will never say in this election, you're not a Christian if you don't vote for Donald Trump, you're not a Christian if you don't vote for um, Joe Biden. We just do not think that is called for. And anyone who's saying otherwise we think is wrong. Um, and so, you know, be free, <laughs> I guess is the one thing I want to leave us with before we go to break. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So we 
are back. Um, so let me just follow one thing up on the last conversation, which is to say, I think we, we, we said, we used some pretty strong language in the last section. We said basically, wow, like don't bind, how, how could you bind your, you know, pastors who are doing this, you are binding the consciences of people to something other than the gospel. And I think any of those folks who hear that would be kind of horrified that that's what is being suggested that they're doing, right? Well, okay, maybe not. But I guess my so, question so, is... So, for example, take the MacArthur video, the, the interview. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. They get to a point in the video where they actually um, sort of um, take on the objection of... Um, freedom. Oh, yeah, they talk about, what about Christian freedom? Yeah. Yeah, and they, they push back against that pretty hard. So, I, don't, I mean... Yeah. Okay, so my, the question I was going to ask is, why do you think it's so easy for leaders to slip into this sort of thinking? Right? Why, why do you think that, they, that, that seems to, there seems to be a blind spot there, where there wouldn't be a blind spot on binding your conscience to other things, if that makes sense? Yeah. I, I got to think it's a mix of things, Nick. Um, I, I got to think that pastors are as susceptible to the cultural winds and waves as other folks. And so some of these folks who are speaking are speaking out of tremendous either fear or resentment or a mix of those things, right? Um, I do also think that as pastors, we face a significant temptation to omniscience, you know, pretending omniscience that we know everything uh, and that we are authorities on everything or that every time we speak, we have to speak authoritatively um, and so that often takes us into lanes that aren't our lane and uh, into comments and, and, and statements that just aren't helpful because we, we're actually not educated and equipped in those areas. Yeah. Um, so that, that's part of it too. And then I do think that uh, another temptation that pastors face is a temptation toward control. Um, you know, we, we have church cultures that elevate pastors to such an extent sometimes um, that they are little demigods in their churches, and uh, they do sort of speak uh, without anybody around them gainsaying what they what they say, and um, speak with a, again a conferred authority um, that that really is unhealthy, not not just to the church but to the pastor himself. Yeah. Um, so, I just think there are a lot of cultural currents inside and outside of the church that tempt um, pastors to to take take a, a, a stance that really, you know, some years hence they might think was unwise um, and that tempt congregations to exalt their pastors in that way. And uh, we, we just need to have some honest, reflective, critical conversations about that. Yeah, I think, I think those are all real temptations. I think too, like, I think they think this is so obvious. Right. It's so obvious that this is a straight line between one political position and the Bible. Um, they can't comprehend how um, people would think, would think otherwise. And, and so like, I mean, uh, abortion is, is the obvious, is the one I think that they have in mind. Um, and I think. It, abortion yeah, I, is licensed for real. The abortion issue is a decades long license for complete intellectual laziness on most of this stuff, I think. I, <laughs> I think uh, to serve t to uh, to make the best case that I can. Uh, yeah, you yeah, know, sorry, I, I, I said something. Let me try to bend over backwards. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a utility, there is a, a impact calculation, right? Like there is, 
the, the numbers behind abortion are, are hard to fathom. And so, you know, for, for folks who are strongly that way, they're going to say, you know, 600,000 a year, like, how can this be a problem? But then, and, and on the other side, like, similarly, you know, we've got policy now is locking up children and separating from their parents at the border. How can you possibly? And so uh, it becomes, yeah, like those things, both of those things are, are horrible and, and shock the conscience. The problem is, is our consciences are shocked about some things and not others. Um, and so it, that, to start to piece all those things together and see how one, somebody else's conscience could really be impacted by something that yours isn't and vice versa, that's hard. That's hard for people to realize um, the limitations of what impacts them and what doesn't. Um, and the other thing I wanted to add to what the BD said, which I think is so true, is uh, we are encased in, in contexts and cultures. And, and so that does churn. I think like one little, I don't know, yellow flag I'd give to any pastor or anybody is, is if you find yourself really identifying with what the popular culture is in your congregation or local area. And you're like, yes, like this is it. Like be careful because it is really easy to get carried away with what is carrying away everyone. Right. Like don't trust yourself to see clearly. I mean, the heart is deceitful above all things. There is. Yeah. If you find yourself constantly affirming the overwhelming consensus option on all sorts of debatable matters, you should start asking yourself some hard questions about whether you're seeing things rightly. And I, I think that cuts left or right. It really does not matter uh, yeah. what political persuasion. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I've said it before, being in the political minority at a church meant that like, I was always having my own views questioned and it was pretty, but it was also pretty easy to see when sort of the, the, uh, like when something was happening for cultural reasons rather from than for theological reasons at that church. It was easier for someone like me to see than it was for, you know, my brother who was kind of in that milieu, as it were. Well, and here's my argument for why we need each other is because it is easier for us to see each other's blind spots. Like yeah. I'm a conservative and I think it's easier for me to see the left blind spots than the right. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Who leans a little bit the other way to say like, hey, I think you're missing it here. Like there is a, there's a tension and a balance um that is needed and can only be can only happen through supernatural unity so like this is why like, i i i don't know i lament the the continued harshening and div divisiveness between whatever sides on any issue that you want to say is because i need people who lean left in my life um for me to see myself or see these issues better I think that's spot on. And, and it's, I think it's one of the things that should concern us about the increasingly partisan nature of local churches, right? Uh, as, as people are kind of self-segregating into uh, more and more monolithic um, cultural and political contexts. I think that should alarm us because it's going to mean that churches where that happens are, are gonna be increasingly church, churches with um, sort of increased blind spots. Um, and, and increased difficulty detecting, as Ben has rightly said, where they're sort of drifting with the current of the world, um, nodding along, you know, in, in a sort of 
self-evident, self-affirming, we, we are correct in this without being checked, you know, by people who see things differently. So, um, so I, I said earlier, right, like, you know, the abortion issue has been a decades long license for intellectual laziness. And I just wanted to say, unpack that for a moment. What I meant by that was, you can come to that conclusion, well, it's hundreds of thousands of lives every year, nothing beats that. So I pretty much don't have to think about the other issues, right? And even when something might come up that challenges even that very premise, right, like whatever, children at the border, that sort of thing, I'm so used to thinking about it this way that like my muscles for like considering these questions have atrophied. And it is actually quite important to even just renew your, even if that is your position to renew your commitment to that position actively <laughs> rather than putting it on autopilot because putting it on autopilot basically means you just start to kind of do whatever the people on your team yeah. uh, on the team you've signed up for kind of say to do. Yeah. Um, and so you find yourself yourself kind of saying, well, the rest of the agenda must be good too. It may or may not be. Right. But but like on the basis of entering on the on one issue, that's the sort of intellectual laziness, even abdication, I would say, um, that we're trying to sort of encourage people not to give into when it comes to this stuff. Well, I think I think a useful exercise for me has been, can I come up with a plausible argument um, for for being being, I don't know, to use the, we're going to beat this one to death, but pro-life and, and landing on the left. And so, you know, I have, like, in the sense of who are the people, like, abortions tend to happen um, in, you know, among the poor. Um, is it a, you know, is it a, people who don't have them as much tend to be financially well off. Is there a systemic element here? Like, if we, if sure. we really handled, you know, economic opportunity well and lifted up the bottom of society, would we see less abortions? And, and I mean, I think the answer is yes. So, I'm not saying I agree, I agree with that, that line of reasoning, but I can see how a Christian of good conscience could look at this and say, you know what, we really want to get rid of, uh, if we really want to lower the abortion rate, we should look for educational economic opportunity for all. And therefore I'm going to, I'm going to vote Democrat. I don't, I don't personally buy that, but I think it's totally plausible that somebody does. Um, and I think that helps me see, like, yes, it's not a clear one-to-one necessarily. Yeah. Well, and Ben, when you, you know, in previous episodes, you talked about um, your sort of flagging faith in um, um, appointments of judges, things of that sort. Mm. So we also see what appear to be the collapse of strategies that had justified the other position. So, so you start to add things together in that way. And then, oh, by the way, you also add this other kind of issue that you care about. It's vastly secondary to abortion, but you care about it and it impacts lives. Um, yeah, I, in, in my view, that's, that's how you, you wind up at other positions than just um, the sort of bullet point position yeah. on, on whatever sort of party. And party all we're saying is that's okay. Right, exactly. That's all right. You don't even, I'll give you another one, Ben, right? Like the politics or the strategy, like think about like one way to read the situation is the party that is pro-life has chosen as its strategy, right? To essentially like demonize the other side to sort of stop at nothing to win elections, including sort of some dirty tricks around voter suppression to kind of not just right into law through the judiciary, like the actual abortion question, but like 
things that make it easier to suppress the vote, easier to, you know, kind of like do other things like that. And they've said, we're going to basically through minority rule, make this happen. Right. And um, that's, it's actually, it's not a bad position to hold. I've, I've painted it in kind of a bad light the way I've said it. You might say, well, look, the issue is so important. We should buy, do it by all means necessary. But there's another way to think about that, which is to say, you know, sort of a ban on abortion imposed by a minority rule is unstable. Right? Like, like there's no way you're actually going to maintain a consensus against that, right? Like, if we were a country that, like, had 52% like still in favor of slavery, you better believe there'd be some random, like, you know, states' rights movements around reinstating slavery throughout the country, right? Like, it, it's all about the fact that we are, whatever, 95% against it, and there's that consensus. I pray we can reach that sort of consensus on abortion one day. We are very, very far from it now, right? So like, there's so many calculations you can make. And again, this is not to say to denigrate one position or the other. Um, let, me, let, me, let me, so let me take this in a slightly different direction now. So we, we've already kind of established, you know, these sorts of endorsements by pastors. We don't think that's a good idea. We've also said we kind of need to be careful about opinions. Is there a point where it would make sense for a pastor to do that sort of endorsing or disendorsing um, in the context of an election or an issue, right? And I don't just, I don't mean, I mean outside of this particular election cycle, other cycles, other contexts, other countries, that sort of thing. Should, should we endorse again? Or, you know, ask you is, there, is there a point at which making such a strong statement as some of these folks have made would actually make sense? So for, uh, we were talking about the show, like we don't like making analogies to Hitler, but like we would like for for argument's sake, you could say, all right, you're a German voter. It's the 1930s. Hitler's on the ballot, like, and we know he's a bad dude, right? Have we then reached a point at which, if you're, you know, a local church pastor, maybe it might sense to actually say, you know, I endorse this other candidate, or go further. You're not a Christian if you don't, right? Like, is there ever a point where that's okay? Right, and Hitler's an extreme example, but that—that's that, the question. I, I think I have to answer that on two levels. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I think on a conceptual level, I think I have to say yes. There's, there's you know, conceptually, there's got to be such a thing, right? Yeah. There's, there's a category for that. Got to be such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then on a practical level, I think what that question presumes is a certain predictive ability. Mm -hmm that at least in the normal context of our elections, we don't have. Yeah. We, we talk hard. that way all the time, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but we don't actually quite have. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it assumes a, um, a candidate sort of ability to directly implement their agenda mm -hmm. that's pretty strong and direct. That again, is not always... Um, sort of evident or possible in our, in our system. So for example, if you had a candidate who said, listen, on day one, I'm gonna call for legislation uh, to, end, to end Roe, right? Um, end, end abortion or some such thing. Um, that's, we're gonna force that. Yeah. If, if, if that person you know, had that sort of ability, I think that's a different moral context than what is normally the case or has been the case since Roe, where actually the ability to change things depends on a whole lot of other actors and factors, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or to flip it the other way, right? To say that you had a candidate who says, yeah, tomorrow I'm gonna to expand abortion to 
you know, the eighth month and, you know, all those kinds of things. And they had the ability to do that. In and some, you knew they could, you knew they you could knew do it. They could do that. Yeah. See, that's a different, that's a different context. So in that context, I think a pastor has a moral responsibility to speak out against that talking about the murder of millions, continuing murder of millions. Um, and I would say that, that the church um, needs to be so instructed that if anyone, if a member in that church were to cast that vote, um, they would be liable to excommunication. Mm. Yeah, to church discipline. Uh, this assumes that the opposite party isn't doing something equally heinous, right? Yeah. So yeah, I make, I'm trying to just make it clean. I'm yeah. trying to think about what would, if we admit conceptually there's a, a possibility, what might that look like? Yeah. And I'm just sort of articulating a couple of things that I think would need to be in place for me to say practically, yeah, that's something we would divide over or something we would excommunicate over. Yeah. I, uh, and I, I think it's hard to get there. I agree. It's hard to really know like that that person will do those things, right? And that they'll be able to. I think that's what makes it hard to sort of say because we don't know, right? Like, so I'm, the other example that just popped in my mind to be was like George Wallace and the famous quote, I say segregation today, segregation forever. That's what he's running on, right? Like, could we say, what might we say, right? Like, um, you know, you're in sin for voting for that candidate, right? Like, and you see, it's crazy, right? Because in hindsight, that, that illustration, we see clearly. Mm. In the moment, right? <laughs> you know, we got tons of Southern evangelical churches and Christians lining up behind Wallace, arguing that this is, segregation is biblical, right? Um, and, and any number of other things. And so we're back to kind of Ben's point, too, about the necessity of being in congregations with people who don't think like us, yeah. right? And, and, yeah. and welcoming that and being sharpened by that lest we just make ourselves vulnerable to our blind spots in, in um, you know, far more significant ways. Uh, but yeah, with, with the advantage of hindsight, um, I think everybody would say, yeah, George Wallace should be excommunicated. People who voted for him should be excommunicated. Da, 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 da. Um, but in the moment, it's just terribly difficult to see and to predict. And so um, I think we need to be slow to uh, dividing and excommunicating um, around these matters because we don't, we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. So as a practical matter, it's pretty rare, right? Like it's got, a, it's a pretty urgent moment when we feel like something like that is actually happening. So hold that thought. Let's take a break and then we will kind of wrap up. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So um, we just talked about whether um, there would ever be a point at which, you know, we would in fact divide over the vote. Um, another question is, should we divide over those who would divide over the vote? 
right? Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, to put it another way, I think to me, there's a fairly blog post, we, we, we use some provocative language, should you ever cancel anyone because they're dividing over the vote? Or, or even simply, you know, there are different levels, right? Like just simply condemn what they said and or literally split with them. What do we think? Yeah, so you, you're right. There are gonna be different uh, measures uh, of discipline uh, available to us in the scripture from uh, church censor, you know, sort of rebuking publicly and yet not removing from the membership all the way down to uh, church discipline or excommunication. Um, I think the reason why I would say we should divide from folks who would divide over the vote is because they themselves are acting divisively. Mm -hmm. So the vision that we would do there is actually to preserve some greater unity than would be possible if you didn't address that divisiveness. So Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, one a divisive person once, uh, one them twice, after that have nothing to do with them, you may be sure uh, that they're warped and sinful and so on. Um, so what's happening with that person who is saying, um, who is dividing over, you know, voting behavior, is that they're actually becoming a divisive agent in the church themselves. That's the sin. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so you have to address that sin because we don't have liberty to divide Christ's body uh, in ways that Christ himself doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think framing it in divisiveness is, is helpful. Um, yeah. I don't think I have anything to add, add to that one. I, yeah. I think that sounds right. The, um, the thought that's in the, I mean, this is goes without saying, but it assumes a lack of repentance when, when challenged. Right. So sure. if, yeah, um, it, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out how that it's, it's strange because the examples that we talked about today are prominent people with large followings in, in churches that we're not a part of. And so it's a weird, a weird thing. How do you, I, but I think it's important, right. In the sense of like, I've, I've talked about, I think we, we I said something before, I, I think our obligation to publicly distance ourselves from a leader is proportional to two things, right? Mm -hmm. Thing one is how prominent is that leader? In other words, how big a following do they have? How much damage can they do with, the, with, the, with essentially the false teaching, right? And number two, how close are you perceived to be to that person? So Ben, you and I are not terribly, we're <laughs> terribly close to any of these people. But the meeting, you know, you, you know, you've run in some of these circles before, right? Like, and I think every leader has to make that kind of calculation. But I think the closer you are to that person and the more prominent that person is, the more you might have an affirmative obligation to, at a minimum, say, even if I continue to affirm their ministry as a whole, I cannot affirm that one thing they said. And I say it's wrong. They are mistaken. Yeah. I think that's right. And, and interestingly, Nick, I think the people that we've listed as examples mm. would entirely agree with what you just said mm. about, about the need to um, distance uh, or to comment in correction um, in situations like that. So lest there's a listener thinking we're beating up on people and, and ourselves being divisive and so on and so forth. Actually, the principle Nick just articulated would be shared by everybody we've mentioned in this show today. Um, and so, I, I, yeah, it's not being unfair. I, I just think he's laying out a, a moral um, logic that, that we all would agree with. Okay, so this, this actually is a good, so, so there's, there's literally the minimum I just said, which is that, the, that one thing they said is wrong. Yes, 
yeah. at one point, at what point does it go further and it becomes, I've actually just kind of, kind of disassociate, disavow. I know they've had some good years of ministry, but I can't kind of so like what, what that's more serious that's the equivalent of the excommunication right and with joe it's like sort of with joe lost you're there you were there decades ago right <laughs> like okay like there's not got nothing to do with that guy right at what point does that become a thing you feel like we ought to do here yeah I, i'm I mean, not suggesting we have to I'm, I'm asking right i don't i don't know and honestly i feel so unable to answer that question i i like i don't there's no reason I need to know or make that decision. I kind of pray I never have to, but I am, Thabiti, you do. And so <laughs> you want to speak to it. This, a lot of this is, a lot of this podcast is me and Nick just being like, hey, Thabiti, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have more responsibility than we do. How do you handle that? Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, that just, that seems really challenging. So I, if Thabiti wants to opine, I'm happy to hear it, but I don't have a good answer at all. And, and and the question opine on how challenging it is to do that? Yeah, or uh, go ahead, Nick. You had a big whether there's such a thing as like, oh my gosh, I've got a I've I've got a whatever excommunication, like say I'm yeah. Yeah, absolutely there's such a thing. <laughs> and it is and it is hard. Um because um uh, but it but it's also the best kind of accountability because uh, it, it's it's hard because these are personal relationships. And it's the best accountability because these are personal relationships, right? Um, so in our day where there's so much distance created between people um, by social media and the internet, things of that sort, um, and it's difficult for someone who doesn't know you, right, to actually gain access to you in a meaningful way mm-hmm. and, and to provide accountability in a meaningful way. When we talk about accountability relationships, for example, we talk about them needing to be local and in-person and tough. Right. Mm. Well, um, that's really all Nick is describing uh, as he sort of describes that that moral responsibility, that moral calculus there Mm. needs to be local, needs to be tough. Um, And the one thing I would add is, you know, again, depending on the issue, it it may need to also be public. Mm. Right. Um, That that there needs to be a a public statement of some sort, um, disagreeing with something, disavowing something or in the case of really disqualifying uh, morally flagrant kind of life and behavior, um, just, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of canceling, um, you know, kind of, kind of ending the, the partnership, ending the relationship, the public ministry together um, in order to preserve and protect the gospel uh, and in order to hopefully, um, you know, be redemptive in that person's life. Now, I, I think that I use the word canceling. I don't actually think that's the right word we think about yeah. sort of cancel culture, um, because I think we need to be redemptive in what we're doing. Yes. Um, but but nevertheless, we may need to be public in, um, you know, commentary things of that sort. Yeah. So it's hard, but I think it's right, like so many things in the Christian life. Uh, and honestly, I think we we've seen a lot of people shipwrecked um, because they've not had that kind of accountability because people around them who knew them prefer to be private rather than public when they maybe should have been public, Um, prefer to lean on the years of relationship instead of taking a more objective um, kind of stance on something. And, uh, you know, lots of people have have kind of slipped through the redemptive net of accountability uh, rather than be caught up in it. And uh, that, that too is a, is a lamentable, a lamentable outcome. Mm 
I think it's so much easier for me to see this stuff in the context of a local church because that's you know that's what sure. um, that's I right. think it's that's what I'm you know passionate about. I just once it's outside and it's these large amplified voices by social media or whatever else, it gets it is a real challenge for me to sift through all of that and how to how to communicate about it so i don't know that you all listen to me openly struggle with that so you know it's good starting point is if you're john MacArthur, it's your elders and your congregation yes right if you're al moeller it's i suppose the church you're at because he's he's not a, i mean he's probably an elder it's, i don't even know right but like or the seminary board or your seminary board right yeah got it yep that makes sense that makes sense but we should all have some accountability in our lives in that way that that's willing to have those conversations with us. And we should have accountability um, that's representative of some acceptable range of diversity of, of views. Um, so if, if um, I'm a pastor and I'm making those comments and everybody on my eldership agrees at every point, um, I'm probably gonna be liable again to my blind spots, right? Uh, I need some people around me who either disagree on some level or even if they dis, even if they agree, might also critique how I did something. Or, uh, but we just need people around us who aren't yes men and yes women, uh, who can speak into our lives. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's hard. And it's funny. This is this episode has been as much a meditation on the challenges of being a celebrity pastor as it has been on some other things. But I think um, it's imp- I, I I do think that that is that is actually at the root of a lot of this. I think that what yeah. you're just describing, like. Yeah. There was a just. I think you said something the other day. I think it was in the other this week's sermon. You were talking about like, you know, a, a culture in churches of well, pastor says, you yeah. know, and that's hard. That's hard. I, I I I guess if I put myself in the shoes of a pastor of any local church, especially in this moment, right? You're everyone's asking you your opinion. Everyone's asking you so either so they can privately say you know, oh, pastor says or whatever else. Everyone is putting pressure on you you're trying to be you're trying not to sort of abuse that and you're also trying to be prophetic and that's just i mean so i just want to recognize that that's really hard i think the mechanisms you've just outlined as far as solutions are the right one they're the ones prescribed by the bible like accountability relationships rebuke people near you who aren't just going to sort of do everything you say um yeah i just think that's really really important um I, so I was, I was going to say, like, I guess my, my, my other reflection on this is simply to say that um, I do think that there's an objection to be made here around unity, right? Um, and I guess what I want to say is, like, it's, it, the way you put it is right, to be like, the, like, these folks are the ones being divisive, and therefore we divide for them over, from them over divisiveness, ironic as that may seem. Um, and I said in last week's episode that I thought that like actually one of the encouraging signs for the church is that there's some division. Division, I mean, shoot, the Reformation was a big division, right? And it may be that Reformed evangelicalism needs a Reformation of its own, right? Like in its own way over these issues in terms of the way it's been situated in like our cultural context for centuries now, right? Like it, it does feel like there is actually a Reformation needed and that that reformation will include divisions. It will include schisms. It will include things that are painful. Um, but if they're done in the way that we think about doing whatever you want, whatever the analogy, excommunic- doing excommunication well, like 
then we need not fear those things. We obviously want to ask for wisdom. Am I being needlessly divisive? Am I just being belligerent? Am I whatever? But I'm not sure we should fear division. Right. And I think sometimes there's a bit of a false belief of, well, unity matters above all else. Well, not if it means letting some of these, you know, false teachings go unanswered, if that makes sense, right? So anyway, that, that's just my last thought on this. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to guess at what the Lord is doing through these politically fraught times or divisive times, but it sure seems like it'd be useful for the church to learn through this process in an age where there seems to be declining political or cultural clout, right? Like mm. if that's true, I don't want to doomsay it. Um, who knows what's going to happen over the next 50 years, but if it's true that um, Christians are, being reduced in whatever its cultural footprint like we're gonna have to learn how to live in a minority that's relatively powerless yeah i.e we're going to have to return to the vast majority of all of history of christendom ben yes or or and not to make too much of it learn some lessons from the historical black church in this country yeah yep yep absolutely i do think i do think that's important but yeah no i it will be a healthier church, right? The American church will be a healthier church without a presumption to temporal power. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like, and, and, and it has enjoyed that presumption for pretty much all of our history. Well, and this is what we get on the Catholics about so often, right? <laughs> right. You know, like the, yeah. the mixture of state power and we're, we're like, oh man, how could they ever make that? How could they ever have been so stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Such a good, and that's exciting, but that we have our own version of that. We have our own version. And, and so, hence the analogy of Reformation. I know I, whatever, I'm the one who suggested it, but I think it's appropriate, right? Like we need our own, it's not as deep or serious perhaps a Reformation as the one 500 years ago was, <laughs> but like it is a Reformation nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Um, so any closing thoughts before we, before we leave our listeners to it? Just, just one pastoral encouragement. Um, if you have, have felt yourself kind of in the squeeze of a vice grip because you've heard, you know, some prominent pastors saying you must do this or must, uh, must do that when it comes to voting or supporting a party. Um, yeah, just know that you have freedom in Christ, that you should look to have your thoughts informed by the word of God and not just a soundbite or a clip. Uh, from some prominent pastor, and and many of those prominent pastors would would want your would want your conscience informed more deeply by the Word anyway, um, and so seek to do that, and seek to follow the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength to love Him in that way, um, and to offer all of that to Him for His sanctification and for His guidance. But don't let yourself um, be bottled up by uh, attempts intentional or otherwise to, to bind your conscience in ways that um, Jesus doesn't let, let Jesus have your conscience. Amen. All right. Well, with that, you want to go ahead and close us in prayer? Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the Lord of life, the Lord of the living and the dead. And you're the Lord of our conscience. We, we want you to reign in our thoughts. We want you to reign in our hearts. We want you to reign in our actions in the voting booth and in public policy and politics. We want it to be so evident that you reign in our lives, that that we defy all the worldly expectations. 
that we want it to be so evident that you reign in our lives, that people would be able to get a clear glimpse of your glory and your love in and through our lives. So help us, O oh Lord, to bring ourselves beneath your word, to humble ourselves beneath your word. And uh, grant, O oh Lord, that we should think your thoughts after you. And grant, O oh Lord, that we would be able to take the whole counsel of God and apply it as best we're able to uh, the, the thorny issues that are before us. In some cases, we, we trust you will uh, affirm things that we already believe. In other cases, you will confront us and challenge us and change us. Help us to accept both things uh, as tokens of your grace and to rejoice in both things, knowing that we're being conformed to the image and likeness of Christ, our dear Savior. So watch over your church. Watch over every person that we named uh, on this show today. Watch over their congregations and uh, watch over all the vast number of unnamed people and congregations. Um, care for your church as only you can, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu slash podcast.